0: Media.
1: SPY Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations.
0: Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein, and this is SPY Talk. My guest today is Calder Walton, one of the world's leading scholars of intelligence and national security. An historian at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, he received a doctorate in history from Trinity College, Cambridge, where he also helped write an authorized 100-year history of MI5, Britain's principal counterespionage agency. Not only that, Walton is general editor of the three-volume Cambridge History of Espionage and Intelligence. He's with us today to discuss his new book out this week called Spies, The Epic Intelligence War Between East and West. His previous book, Empire of Secrets, punched big holes in the sterling reputation of post-World War II British intelligence, which has been burnished beyond recognition by slavish historians and filmmakers. We're happy to have such an iconoclast with us today. Calder Walton, welcome to Spy Talk. We want to talk about your book, of course, "Spies: The Epic Intelligence War Between East and West," which, as you know, it has been going on a hundred years or more. But first, the topic of the day: the Beluga Whale Spies.
1: What's going on with that? Good question, Jeff. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. I love the podcast. Um, the Beluga Spy Whale. Difficult to know where fact. Finishes and fiction begins. I mean, let's stand back and and uh, look at this from a historical perspective. It's certainly well. The- if
0: I may interrupt here, just to set the facts. So a beluga, a well-known beluga whale, as it turns out, has surfaced in Scandinavian waters, particularly off Sweden, and it is said that it was discovered with a, a GoPro camera yeah. on it, uh, yeah. and which was marked uh, something about uh, it came from a Saint Petersburg uh, yeah. uh, factory. Uh, yeah. So it's highly suspected to be a Russian spy.
1: Yeah. That is certainly the case. It's also certainly the case. I'm afraid, just to perhaps pour some cold water on the theory, that wouldn't the Russian government also want to plant uh, something uh, on a on a whale to make it look as though they're perhaps more sophisticated and up to no good than they are? I mean, it, it, we're either dealing with very sophisticated uh, spies using using um, under underwater. Um, animals uh, to collect intelligence, or we're dealing with um, rather uh, simplistic tradecraft that has things, as you just noted, Jeff, made in St. Petersburg on the equipment. That seems to be incriminating. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I'm afraid that I'm more inclined to say that this perhaps is a Russian disinformation plot Hmm. to get us all talking and thinking about this and wondering what other animals have the Russians managed to to ensnare into their nefarious uh, plots uh, under sea and above ground. But look, I mean, the the, the point is that I'll stress to your listeners um, governments of all shapes and forms have used animals in the past for espionage from carrier pigeons through yes to um, uh, I think that seals were used in the cold war to try to detect Uh, underwater mines and so on and dolphins. Um, It's not impossible that the Russian government is using this whale to swim close to sensitive areas, cables and so on and so forth, can't be ruled out. But as I say, I also think that it has the hallmarks perhaps of a Russian plot to get us all talking about this and worried about how masterful and powerful the Russian government is.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Maybe a diversion from their use of underwater drones. Uh, Exactly. back to your book. Many books have been written over the years about the rivalry between Western intelligence and Soviet intelligence, Russian intelligence. Why did you think a new book was necessary?
1: Well, um, I I started the book before the war in Ukraine kicked off. amidst um, the Trump-Russia saga in this country. And why did I think another book was was necessary? Because I kept getting approached by different media outlets to say, this is unprecedented, isn't it, what we're seeing with Trump and Russia? Mm-hmm. And it, it became something of a mission uh, for me to look into the history and to say, actually, the technology is new, but the underlying principles... The reasons why different states do things, spy, covert action, and so on, it remains largely the same, even if all Mm -hmm. of the technology uh, has changed around us. So it was an effort to try to bring um, historical perspective to the events that we're seeing unfold on our TV each day
0: hmm As you record in the book, it's a marvelous book, by the way, and, and you are a beautiful writer. Uh, you turn what may be dull uh, material for many into really a compelling narrative. So I congratulate you on that. Thanks so much, Jeff. I, I appreciate that coming from you a great deal. Well, you're welcome. Um, and it's highly deserved. So uh, as you point out, uh, One of the earliest priorities of the Bolsheviks, after they took power in 1917, was to establish security and intelligence arms. And they were very aggressive about it. Uh, One of their chief worries or threats was the formation of emigre groups in Western Europe, anti-communist emigre groups. Groups and they uh, masterfully infiltrated them. In one instance, creating their own fake emigre group to draw anti-communists to them. Can you describe that briefly to us?
1: Absolutely. It, one one um, operation called Operation Trust or Trest in, in Russian uh, was an effort, just as you described, to set up a a, a bogus, a false um, uh, group, uh, anti-Bolshevik group in order to entice and attract uh, anti-Bolsheviks exiled abroad outside of Russia to bring them back where they were then promptly um, arrested and many executed by the Bolsheviks. This was an early effort in the 1920s, but um, the strategy behind it of creating false groups in order to unmask others who were, um, trying to undermine the regime, that would be repeated um, throughout the Soviet period uh, over the coming decades. It was um, it was spectacularly successful, and it ensnared um, some British uh, officers um, in in the plot who were um, pulled back to Russia in the case of the so-called ace of spies, Sidney Riley, a mm-hmm. guy who's Dossier MI5 dossier is now declassified, and I have to say, having spent hours reading it, I'm still none the wiser as to who, to whom his true allegiance was. Right. I think ultimately it was he was his true allegiance was to himself um, uh-huh. and, and one of his many wives. Um, but anyway, this was an adventurer who tried to unseat the the Bolsheviks and um, was forced into exile. And the group that you just mentioned, Jeff. Um, pulled him back, um, enticed him back where he was arrested uh, and shot. Moving on to the Depression era, Soviets were very successful
0: in recruiting high-level agents in the West uh, out of uh, uh, perhaps naive or misdirected uh, uh, allegiance that some of the elites held for the Soviet Revolution, which they thought would save worldwide capitalism from itself. Uh, among these were of course, the well known Cambridge Five, led by Kim Philby, but they also attracted spies in the United States, including the atomic spies, the Rosenbergs and so on um, that that has passed the way, right? I mean, what Americans spy for money now <laughs> there's no idealization of the Russians, much less communism.
1: That's right. And I think that what I found during the research for this book over the last six years was that it's certainly the case that ideologically committed agents can be, can be some of the most destructive or effective if you're the recruiting power. So the five Cambridge spies who you just mentioned were convinced uh, in the what I think it's fair to say, the myth image of the Soviet Union uh, squinting from afar in the, um, in the hallowed halls of Cambridge in England. They looked on Stalin's Soviet Union as being the the way of the future, and they devoted their uh, energies to it. Um, that involved with skillful tradecraft from the, um, wasn't known as the KGB, but Soviet Intelligence Service then, the NKVD, um, to take the entrance exams, Um, uh, for the British civil service, and to try to get themselves into sensitive positions. And my Lord, were they successful. So ideology was absolutely key. Um, It meant that they were able to to work in a way that that at times meant that they were producing so much intelligence that their Soviet handlers couldn't keep up with it. And you're absolutely right now, Jeff, that that Russia uh, in recent years, didn't really seem to have an ideology but i would just offer a caution i'm afraid about this that the putin's russia at the moment is holding itself up to be a alternative um to the liberal democratic woke um left uh in here in the united states it it it, putin's regime describes itself as as white You know, we can't get around that. Mm -hmm. Ethno-nationalism, religious, a safe haven from wokeism. You don't have to look very far on Russian Telegram's um, channels to see that being popularized. And I'm afraid that that element um, within... um, We have to be... It's just a matter of fact here, that the hard right in US politics and their affinity for that... I think poses a a new kind of national security threat uh, within the US intelligence community and government.
0: This whole domestic political development with the hard right here echoing uh, Russian uh, propaganda is so curious to me. Uh, I, I, you know, smart people, people with Harvard and Yale degrees, I'm talking about you, Florida governor, DeSantis, you know, have picked up these themes and it makes you wonder whether they are witting or unwitting agents of the Russians. And that's a pretty harsh charge to make, but you can't help but ask it.
1: I think that's right. I think that at least in the UK, um, there was a very powerful parliamentary uh, report uh, published in 2019, which really uncovered a lot of the the Russian um, tentacles that reached into Westminster, um, because the US is not alone in this, in the the hard right. Um, And it came down, um, a lot of it comes down to money and to Russian oligarch money in the city of London. I think that the same thing is playing out here in the US russian oligarch money over the previous years decades um you know come crashing into places like florida into into real estate um businesses and new york as well but you're absolutely right it is a it is a curious if if you think of it historically of where we are that the the hard right in the us the gop would be soft on russia whereas the left (laughs) would be harder on Russia. I mean, the world has turned upside down from where we were just at the Mm. end of the Cold War. It's absolutely extraordinary.
0: There is a rough parallel, a very rough parallel here between some elites in Britain and Western Europe and the United States uh, uh, in regard to the rise of the Nazis in Germany. Um, One of the many surprising things that comes out of your book is that Uh, I'm going to quote from it now, despite their famed reputations, Britain's intelligence services were spying blind at the outset of war in Europe in September 1939. You go on to say MI5 and MI6 did not even know the name of Germany's foreign intelligence services, the Abwehr, let
1: alone run any significant operations against it. Wow. Absolutely extraordinary. And I'm getting this from a an in-house report, uh, an in-house history of MI5, written by MI5 in 1945. It's now been declassified, and this is really a um, what? What did we do during the during the Second World War? What can we do better if if something were to happen next time? And it, it it's just absolutely striking, shocking, reading it about the early stages of the Second World War. This is before. Britain's uh, allied codebreakers at Bletchley Park, um, their efforts had started to come online. Um, And as I I said, Britain was effectively spying blind without agents uh, in in Berlin close to to Hitler's decision making. Of course, it has to be said, easier said than done, you know, to, to, um, to recruit an agent close to Hitler or indeed Stalin. But... That is surely uh, the job of a, of a decent foreign intelligence service is to get that kind of human intelligence. Um, and MI6, MI6 was disastrously unprepared, but it has to be said better than the US government that at the time didn't even have a foreign intelligence service.
0: Right, the OSS, the predecessor to the CIA, wasn't even set up until 1942, several months after Pearl Harbor. Exactly. But and this- the Brits had one successful operation going on against the United States. Ironically That's right. enough, uh, uh, William Stevenson was a British agent sent to America to set up a secret influence operation to nudge Americans into supporting Britain at the outset of World War II. That's uh, correct. You know, we rail against Russian influence operations and Chinese operations here, but it was the Brits who really pioneered influence operations in the United States.
1: That's absolutely correct, Jeff, and the reason that I chose to include that um, episode in the book, albeit briefly, uh, is I wanted to emphasize to readers that there is no such thing as a friendly intelligence service only an intelligence service of a friendly country. And that subtle nuance makes a big difference. That Mm -hmm. even close allies um, still have their own private agendas and interests. And that was Mm -hmm. certainly the case with Britain um, before the Second World War, trying to bring the US uh, into the war on Britain's side against the the powerful isolationist groups, quote-unquote isolationist groups here in the US, one of whom, um, as I point out in the book, was called America First or the America First Committee. Um, it's, it's, an, it's a remarkable story. Um, the secret in-house previously secret in-house history of the British security coordination that you just mentioned um, has been declassified a number of years, um, but looking at it with fresh eyes today, which goes to your point. Um, why did I choose to write about this, this period? We haven't, do we need another book? Well, I think it's always important to go back and have a look at previous episodes, even those familiar, uh, with fresh eyes, given current events. I'm going to be putting more of that story, Jeff, on the book's website, which is going to be going live just before publication. So, so your listeners will be able to read more about British meddling in US politics on the book's website. SpiesHistory.com.
0: That's true. Was there, uh, by the way, what happened after that was discovered? There weren't any particular repercussions, we didn't, Roosevelt didn't punish the Brits.
1: Uh, no. It, he came it, in it, on the Brits side. That's right. And Roosevelt infamously, famously, infamously used a map which had been given to him by the British authorities. Um, in one of his so-called Fireside Chats radio broadcasts to describe the threat that Hitler's Third Reich posed to the Western Hemisphere. This map was, in fact, a British forgery. It didn't necessarily say anything that wasn't uh, out there from Hitler's speeches, but it was presented in a way that was simply false it was bogus it was the it was the the product of a um of british forgeries now the real question jeff is did roosevelt know what he was doing did it did it did the map that was given to him by Britain's spy chiefs did it prove what he wanted to hear certainly there were some in his administration that smelled a british rat and 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 were on to them and they were of course proved right ultimately but the and they didn't mind it so much they didn't mind it. So, so this actually, if you wanted to, to really get into the weeds on this, this is the essence of what I, seems to me is an effective influence operation. You're pushing at something that, that the recipient, the audience already wants to hear. And my Lord, we've seen this in more recent times um, mm-hmm. with Russian meddling in the US politics.
0: Hmm. Now, swiveling back to World War II again, and your long story, of the rivalry between East and West in the intelligence sphere. Um, How long did it take us to catch up to German or
1: Axis intelligence? And what was the key? Was it code breaking? I think that it was code breaking. Uh, the, The game changer was the breaking of the Enigma code by Bletchley Park and US cryptographers. Um, It it was simply unprecedented. It allowed for the industrialization of intelligence collection in a way uh, without parallel to that point in history. Literally, the intelligence um, at Bletchley Park was like a a machine, an industry, churning out um, the decrypted communications. It was a game changer, and it meant that Britain's spy chiefs, allied spy chiefs, were able to do things um, with that intelligence that would have been impossible otherwise. So the, the famously successful so-called double cross committee during the Second World War, this was MI5's uh, effort to track down and turn German agents arriving in Britain, turn them into double agents. That would have been impossible without Bletchley decrypts. Uh, known as codenamed Ultra, or within uh, ex- uh, reports declassified, we can see now most secret sources. That's how the the intelligence was was known. Without knowing that the disinformation that the British were passing over to Germany through their through their double agents was being believed and being transmitted, you wouldn't be able to calibrate it and to know whether it was working. It was an absolute game changer.
0: Of course, the uh... The Soviets were our allies during World War II in that we were all fighting the Nazis together, but uh, that relationship devolved into a Cold War pretty quickly uh, uh, within days of the collapse of uh, Hitler and his regime. Uh, And yet, President Truman disbanded the OSS immediately after the end of the war distrusting any powerful uh, intelligence service in the US government. It wasn't until 1947 that the CIA was established. Were we then uh, again behind the eight ball? Uh, Did the Russians have an uh,
1: uh, upper hand in the spy wars? Absolutely. The Russians had um, uh, an upper hand in the spy wars at that point. I would actually say that the Cold War as we conventionally know it started much much earlier than 1945 certainly during the second world war when as you point out jeff that that britain and the us were allied with the soviet union well stalin we can now see from soviet intelligence records didn't view their alliance in any way uh the same way um stalin's most successful intelligence operations during the second world war were conducted not against Nazi Germany, but against his own allies, Britain and the US, the Western Mm -hmm. allies, um, by um, penetrating um, their intelligence services, their most sensitive areas of government, stealing their secrets like the ultra secret, uh, the Bletchley Park secrets, and most importantly, stealing the plans for the Anglo-American atomic bomb project. It meant Mm -hmm. that in 1945, uh, when the US um, dropped atomic bombs on Japan, ending the Second World War, Stalin, in fact, had those plans, thanks to his Soviet agents, for an atomic bomb. Uh, This would shape post-war international affairs down to the present day. Um, The Cold War, um, in my view, when you see it from an intelligence perspective, was well underway in 1945, and it would add to your point, Jeff. It would take the coming years for the U.S. government to catch up with that reality. I'm afraid I, I, I admire Truman in so many ways, but when it when it comes to intelligence, and he, of course, did more than anyone eventually to establish the U.S. intelligence community as we know it, creating the CIA, establishing the NSA. Um, but to start off with, he wasn't really sure what he wanted from uh, US intelligence. Um, at the um, uh, the foundation of the CIA, he had a party uh, for people in, in Washington and he, and he invited his uh, first DCI director of central intelligence. And he gave him, I think I'm right in saying, false glasses and a mustache and said, this, this guy's my uh, director of centralized snooping. So it was a humorous moment um, but I think reveals more about he wasn't really sure what he wanted from a, a, a US foreign intelligence service.
0: Now, we've had a number of successes against the Soviets and the Russians uh, over, the, over the decades, uh, uh, which the CIA has been uh, eager to publicize. Um, a high-level Russian spy during the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, Oleg Penkovsky. And it seems that according to the documents unearthed in the so-called discord leaks from the uh, Air Force airmen in Cape Cod, who who stole documents and put them up on the Internet, um, we seem to have some penetration of the Kremlin. Is that your... uh, deduction from these documents?
1: That certainly seems to be the, the case to me. Uh, I read very uh, carefully as it was unfolding um, the, the US intelligence com- community's assessment of Putin's electoral interference uh, in 2016 and then in 2020. Um, but certainly, the, the according to public reporting, the key intelligence about Putin's decision to to meddle in the US presidential election in 2016 was derived from a human source. And that human source, uh, according to public reporting has been exfiltrated um, to, to, uh, out somewhere outside of the US, hopefully uh, safely um, away from, from everyone. But it um, seems
0: that we, we still have penetration probably through electronic intercepts of Kremlin communications. I think that's
1: absolutely the case. We, we certainly seem to have breathtaking levels of, of intelligence on Putin's plans um, before the invasion, his invasion of Ukraine. And as your listeners will remember, just over a year ago, the, the US government and its allies, the British were able to um, declassify, uh, really quite quite bravely, it seems to me, declassify and publicize those war plans thereby removing putin's um potential to concoct pretexts for invasions um so that was i think you're at, this is absolutely the right that we seem to the u.s intelligence community seems to have high level penetration whether that is derived from a human source or a combination of human source technical intelligence collection or the name of the game at the moment open source intelligence remains to be seen. I think, Jeff, that I think that it's a combination of all of the above. Is and it
0: possible that-, that some of these leaks are disinformation on our side to make the Russians paranoid that we don't have all these intercepts and we're just putting out this information to sow discord at the top levels of the
1: Kremlin. It's entirely possible. Um, this will be something that people like myself will be pouring over in the archives one day in the future, trying to figure out what was exactly going on the, uh, through the moment we were all living through. If I were in the in the CIA, in the US intelligence community, it would be an obvious thing I'd, I'd choose to do to try to leak uh, intelligence to make it look as though we are more, we have a greater collection capabilities than perhaps we do. But the reality is, as the world saw, certainly as the before the invasion, um, we were witnessing, um, I think it's fair to say, a US intelligence success, um, words that we don't really hear too often. Um, We normally hear about intelligence failures. Let's talk um, about
0: uh, more disinformation for a moment. The Soviets and the Russians have... uh, really uh, uh, favored this as a as a tool of what you might, uh, might call strategic intelligence, just uh, information. For example, one of the most famous examples was that the Soviets planted the rumor that the U.S. government was responsible for spreading the AIDS virus in the early 1980s, that this emanated from a secret bioweapons program that the U.S. had and, and that was spectacularly successful, especially in the so-called non-aligned world. Uh, the Soviets or the Russians have not dropped this technique. In fact, they seem to have found a soft spot here. Witness the spreading of the rumor that bioweapons labs in Ukraine were responsible for misfortunes. Um, so this is a a, a continuity from Ru- Soviet to Russian intelligence disinformation operations.
1: Yes, you're absolutely right, Jeff. That the the KGB's um, active measure disinformation to spread the conspiracy theory that the AIDS pandemic, the AIDS virus, was concocted um, through a U.S. bio weapon. It was spectacularly successful uh, at its time. Again, it goes back to the point uh, that we made earlier, that an effective um, covert action uh, often pushes at a theme that people already want to believe. In third world countries and third world audiences, there was already an inherent uh, suspicion of the US government using um biological agents chemical agents this is a you know a, a result of um many ways vietnam an uh, agent orange, orange being used there so the us government was nefarious and was willing to do these this type of thing according to many people in um third world countries um audiences and so when this new virus uh, uh, emerged Um, and the KGB concocted pseudoscientific proof to show that it came from from a branch of the US government in a secret bioweapons facility. In many ways, it was pushing at an open door in terms of um, uh, audiences. The the striking thing, Jeff, about that conspiracy theory, codenamed Operation Denver, also known as Operation Infection, is actually... Yes you're quite right to point out that the Russian government today is replaying that old sort of casebook textbook about bioweapons facilities in Ukraine but the real the real striking really striking um rehashing of this old conspiracy theory um, arose with the covid pandemic and the the bioweapons lab in Wuhan now who knows uh we just don't know uh, there was news just this week of a chinese um uh, scientists saying that we shouldn't discount anything in terms of a bio weapon uh, or bio um biological experiment escaping from the lab in wuhan but the chinese government turned the whole thing around as, as your listeners may remember and said that actually it was a u.s biological weapon that escaped nothing to do with the chinese government and where did they say that it arose they said that it arose in the same facility, Fort Dietrich, uh, in Maryland, where the KGB claimed that the AIDS virus had originated. So this is really a history repeating itself in many ways. The same, the same culprit, the same theory being used first by the KGB and then by Chinese intelligence today.
0: Now, our active measures uh, are very different. From theirs, it seems to me, uh, we eschew sort of making things up out of whole cloth in favor of penetrating uh, the Russian psyche—you might say the Kremlin psyche—with with, uh, with uh, programs that are based on uh, real things. For example, Doctor Zhivago was banned in the Soviet Union, the United States uh, translated it uh, into many languages and and infiltrated it into the Soviet orbit. Um, uh, I think the jury's probably still out on how successful that was. Another uh, active measures campaign by the West was um, to get a copy of Khrushchev's secret speech denouncing Stalin, and making sure that was available around the world. Now, that seemed to have a real effect on uh, 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 creating some distance between the last remaining adherents of communism in the West and the Soviet Union.
1: I think with all of these Western covert action efforts during the Cold War, and then we can see traces of them although they get fewer and fewer in the in the publicly available records after the end of the Cold War. There does seem to be an emphasis placed on production, if you like. So dissemination. So get a copy of Dr Zhivago and disseminate it behind the Iron Curtain. Get a hold of the um, uh, Khrushchev secret speech denouncing Stalin and disseminate it. I think the really interesting um, metric would be to try to find a way on on which I believe the CIA did about the actual impact that that had. Now I've seen references to this in declassified records over the uh, during my research about um, polling data um, that was conducted under different aliases by the CIA in target countries. I've only seen references to that and and not actually the results. But again, uh, it's not too difficult to think that um, policymakers in Washington or London or any other Western government will say, okay, we're spending all this money. You're, you're pumping the, 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 the stuff out. Is it actually having any impact? And can we measure that impact? Um, and that's something, again, that, that still exists today. Uh, there's a fire hose of information. What impact does it have? Well, if I was controlling the budget for an intelligence agency, I would like to have some quantifiable data. I believe the CIA did that in the past. Don't know what the results are. I believe Western agencies are doing it today. Don't know what the results are, but this is what the, one of the wonderful things about writing about intelligence history is that um, uh, there's no such thing as a, a, a final draft. Um, I'll come back to this when war records become available.
0: Yeah, I suspect that the tempo of covert operations has picked up because of the Ukraine war. Now, Definitely. I have to ask now, you've written a history of over, over a century-long battle between East and West intelligence services. Can you point to any one intelligence operation on either side that made a big difference?
1: That made a big difference, ultimately. I think that uh, the intelligence produced by the MI6 agent in the KGB, Oleg Gordievsky, made a difference. It opened the curtain uh, for the British government and then for the US government um, on the genuine sense of fear that the Kremlin had about the US government, about Western powers. Um, and how did that make a difference? It made a difference by um, Thatcher, uh, Margaret Thatcher um convincing Reagan to tone down his rhetoric by saying, actually, this isn't just rhetoric on the part of the Soviet leaders. They genuinely are are afraid of you. Reagan writes in his diary, words to the effect, it's crazy to me to think that they they are that they are scared, but it, evidently that, that that they that they are scared. Um, this was a sort of watershed moment um for Reagan's policy towards the, the, the Soviet Union. Uh, an operation that truly made a difference? Well, without going down the rabbit hole of the exact nature of Trump's relationship with Russia, I think that Russia's intelligence services operation to influence the 2016 presidential election was more successful than either they or their predecessors in the KGB could ever have dreamed of. Did it make a difference? People have analyzed this um, it seems to me, um, it seems to me, probable that Russian disinformation provided a tipping point uh, in that election. It's impossible to quantify, um, but the sheer volume of disinformation um, being projected and targeted at key U.S. swing states—I can't see how it didn't make a difference.
0: Can you put your finger on any particular reason that Trump went soft on the Russians? Or is it a constellation of things? Is, is commercial interests in building hotels in Moscow and so
1: on? Jeff, I wish I had the answer to this. I've spoken to FSB defectors who have told me that um, U.S. businessmen... Uh, in particular, the real estate um, area would be prime targets for FSB officers whenever those US business people um, spoke, uh, whenever those US people uh, visited Moscow. It seems inconceivable to think that the FSB did not know about Trump's visits to um, to Russia um, and make assessments of him. Um, I think that so much of to do with um, with Trump and Russia is about his own uh, financial interests. Um, So it seemed that seems to be the continue continual through thread in his um, in his relationship (laughs) at the strategic level with Putin. Hmm. Let me go back and say there's there was an an answer to your question, a, a single operation that made a difference. It would have to be above all else. Soviet espionage successful um successfully stealing the secrets of the atom bomb in the second world war that is fair to say changed history it didn't mean that the soviet union uh the soviet union would have been able to create an atomic bomb anyway but what it did was to accelerate soviet research and development. It it, it accelerated Stalin's atom bomb project so that when the Soviet Union eventually detonated its first weapon in 1949, it was a replica of the U.S. atomic bomb in the Second World War. That is a profound impact on making a difference in world history.
0: And, of course, the Chinese followed not long after with their own atomic bomb. Uh, There seems to be a rough equivalent today uh, in Chinese theft of... U.S. warplane designs. Um, uh, you look at the new Soviet uh, warplane, uh, new Chinese warplanes, and you say, "My God, this is a knockoff of what we've done." Do you think that there'll be any surprises, big surprises, that will come out of the current period uh, down the road?
1: I often wonder that is that question is is there is there a technology like the. Um, Manhattan Project, the secrets of the Manhattan Project that um, the Chinese have managed to get hold of. I think that the technologies that are going to shape our future, um, biotechnology, for example, those will be the areas that, if if such secrets do exist that the Chinese have obtained, that's where I'll, I'll be looking. Uh, the bio revolution, biotechnology revolution, is going to change all of our lives in the coming decades. And our artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence absolutely it's inconceivable to think that the chinese intelligence services which as i say in the book are like the kgb on steroids are not targeting um those areas at the cutting edge of research in the west like um pharmacy um whether they've successfully stolen those secrets i'm afraid as you as your question Suggests Jeff, uh, we'll, we'll just have to find out in the coming years.
0: Well, we have to leave it there, caller Walton. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I urge anyone with an interest in modern history, and especially, of course, intelligence history, to get a hold of your beautifully written book, Spies, The Epic Intelligence War Between East and West. Thank you, caller.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Great, great to be here.
0: And that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Be sure to check out our complete archive at the MSW Network or on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, please check out the Spy Talk news site over on Substack where our deeply experienced contributing writers offer a steady diet of scoops and original analysis. Just Google Spy Talk and you'll find your way there. This edition of the Spy Talk podcast, like all the others, was produced by Kanai at MSW Media with expert editing from Molly Hawkey. Oh, and by the way, that music you've been hearing beneath my narrative, espionage aficionados will recognize it as the soundbed for the 1965 thriller The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, starring Richard Burton as the disposable British spy Alex Lemus. So that's it. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Stein.
1: For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.